Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here getting ready for uh, the holiday season. I guess we can debate if we're in the holiday season, if Advent is holiday season or not. It's not, strictly speaking, Christmas. But the world is definitely in the holiday season. Churches are starting to look like uh, Christmas. And if anybody's getting upset, I said holidays instead of Christmas. Remember, holiday means holy Holy day. day. (laughs) So um, these are, uh, there's just no way around it. Christmas just is always standing tall no matter how you try to switch it up. But uh, we are going to be talking today, and we're very happy to have a a guest in studio with us who was with us last year um, as we unpacked some Christmas truths. And we focused, I think, specifically on the Incarnation, and we read um, Athanasius um, on the Incarnation. We looked at Luther's uh, Christmas sermon. Um, And I want to say we had one more text for that, did we, or was that the two? That's what I remember. But we unpacked the the Incarnation as a whole, and today we're going to be looking at um, what we'd like to do each year with Christmas is is to focus on Christology and, and who this Christ is. And so today um, we are going to be looking at the uh, the communication of attributes in, in Christ. I don't want to give away who our guest is, although WLC people probably already recognize the voice, and some of you who've listened before might. But why don't we go ahead and uh, let our colleague, uh, esteemed colleague up here on the third floor, uh, school chair, um, longest serving full-time theology faculty member now that Mark has gone part-time. Oh, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit about yourself for our listeners. I'm Paul Laninger, and I served in the parish for 12 years, first in Brazil, then in Yuma, Arizona, and then summers between Racine and Kenosha. And I went back and got my doctoral degree at Marquette University in historical theology and have been at WLC full-time. I was an adjunct for five years. I taught German as well as, well, German and (laughs) Spanish at one point, as well as theology. Uh, Since 1995, I've been full-time here at WLC. And uh, Paul teaches here at the college both our Lutheran Confessions course, and then uh, the numbers have changed so much with the new gen, but is it still 401, 402? Um, Well, uh, yeah, and it's basic teachings of the Bible 1 and basic teachings of the Bible 2, basically. Which which is probably our most straightforward doctrine class, I would say. Um, Because even Lutheran Confessions is doctrine, but it's also church history and a lot of things at once. So... um, yeah, and you, you I cut you off by accident. You use the Kaler book for that, for, for doctrine. And um, and so Paul's a very natural uh, guest for this. But Paul also um, has done a lot of work, I would say, um, with the early medieval church fathers. Um, and Christology is something uh, that when we were talking about doing this, Paul came to mind to have him on. And so we're excited to do that. Peter and Ben, as usual lately. Mike, what are they doing? I think they have jobs. Yeah, they're still doing the job thing. I don't know why they insist on that. I would think the podcast should be making enough that um, we should be able to support them. How much did we make on the podcast this year, Mike? Um, well, zero. Probably negative something. Probably though, negative. We probably spent might. some money, yeah. Yeah, so... You have to do the NPR thing. Yeah, we got to monetize right. and then do a drive. drive. Yeah. Actually, last time I said, um, don't send us money. Wade will Wade will misuse it. So yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> give it to somebody else. Um, but so we're going to be talking about the communication of attributes today. And you might be thinking, well, what is that? The good news is we're going to explain it. But that Christ is divine and human, and this is where the the rubber really hits the road about if someone recognizes Christ as who he says he was. Um, Lots of people will have good things to say about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Um, great teacher, great example, great philosopher. Um, But 
I, who he said he was is very clear in the New Testament, and that is true God and true man. How can he be both? In what way is he both? Um, well, through exegesis over time and uh, through lots of debates, the church has come up with very careful language to talk about that. And what we want to do especially today is I think sometimes people will come in and they'll say, well, that's not practical. Why should I care about that? Um, why should there be a Bible class on that? Or even on a college campus, not here, of course, but that's not practical enough. Why have that in a, in a, in a class of theology? And uh, all theology is, is practical, is a, a kind of a, I guess, an axiom of theology. And, uh, and I think especially this doctrine is not only practical, but extremely comforting. And I would say it sets Christianity apart from every other religion out there in the theological marketplace. So we'll be delving into that. And as we get ready to do so, Mike, would you mind giving us our disclaimer? Did you put any Christmas feel into the disclaimer or no? No. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Hello, we're back for our free-for-all, and today we're going to choose our favorite Christmas hymn. Uh, Dr. Leninger, uh, we already mentioned all his, uh, his accomplishments and his expertise, but also into the liturgy and hymnody and can sing and do all those things. So um, this will be, we thought this would be a good topic to I have wanna, for I want to say you two have both actually been daring enough to chant matins here at the college, haven't you? I haven't yet. And Paul has chanted. Yeah, we don't. Oh yeah, for chapel. When we've done it in the we've done it for chapel. So, yeah, oh yeah. Which I always respect because I chanted in the parish, but only after a few years, and I knew they really loved me and were forgiving. So same way, I took me. It took me about six years to get up the courage to do it. I just don't yeah. have that. I don't have that gift. And I never had music in school. We went to public school, and uh, there was just and in probably music. one of the be- synod's better church choirs. Um, Paul is at St. John's Tosa, yeah. directed by. Someone with a doctorate in music, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, Bill Braun. We usually have our guests go last, but I, I'm fine with whatever order yeah, we want to go in. I'll, I'll go first, and then we'll go to you. Since wait. it's a free-for-all. Sure. You <laughs> and can we're do talking about, And we're talking about chanting. I, I have a story. Sure. So my best friend at seminary for his wedding, uh, which was here in Milwaukee, he had my roommate, he asked my roommate to chant the gospel. The whole thing was chanted. Nice. And... My, my roommate at the time was notoriously a bad singer. I, 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 so I, was this I, set up as a prank? Or? No, I, huh. I, but, but I, said, I said, Mark, what in the world are you thinking, asking him to chant the gospel? And you know what? He did it. It was, yeah. you know, you can, you can chant. Anybody can chant, yep. just it, so you know. It takes, it takes a little practice. I, I think I've told you the story that we'd drive from Minnesota to Chicago to go visit my, uh, my parents and... Uh, I would on the road practice chanting with my, and my wife would say, no, no, that's terrible. You're, you're not going high enough. And, 
but uh, I finally got to it. I will say if one I of the, one it, of the challenges in my view is, so I can't read music very well. I've never been in a choir that I wasn't at one point told I didn't have to be in the next semester um, from grade school through college. Um, but uh, our matins and vespers in the hymnal, I can chant. Like, I can get that mm-hmm. figured out. But the main services in our current hymnal, I think the chant tones are not very conducive um, to a, a wide range of voices. Like, I, did you ever try the common service, like as it is in, in the Christian? Oh, worship? yeah, yeah. I've, I've been told I think the new hymnal will be a little bit easier with that, but I had the hardest time ever trying to learn those. I think the other problem is that people, you, you imagine there are these music experts in the congregation, you know, listening. Oh, oh he got that note wrong. Mm-hmm. So what if you get a note wrong? Right. Almost nobody knows when you're mm-hmm. chanting if you get a note wrong. Right. And you just keep going. Yeah, and we, we've Speaking talk- of chanted masses, we should listen to Praetorius this uh it doesn't, isn't that the Christmas? Mass? Yeah, that would be beautiful. That's a listeners. I mean, as let the bird fly, listeners. Yeah, we should all make sure to take time. It's on YouTube even now, I think too. But the Praetorius Christmas Mass is a wonderful one to uh, to listen to if you want to hear old school um, how Lutherans did Christmas. And I think they did it at a worship conference that I didn't attend. <laughs> so I think I was at the one they did it at. Yeah, there you go. And we, we've talked about chant before on this uh, podcast. Maybe some people are rolling their eyes, but if you have, you hear um, a gospel chanted, and it may be the most familiar part of scripture that you know, maybe it's like John 1, you've heard it uh, hundreds of times, because each word is kind of equal in a chant, those words... Or specifically words, certain emphasized, yeah. Yeah, so you know, when I'm speaking John 1, I can't help myself, and I shouldn't just go monotone i can't help but give you my subtle interpretation of what i think is important but because the chant is neutral and so yeah there'll be things that will be highlighted but not because of that particular text just because of the of the chant tone um those words that maybe you forgot about they all are all of a sudden highlighted I've always, when I hear chanting of scripture, I kind of see the words. I almost envision the words coming, and each one has its own. Uh, they're all equal. Each each word has it has its own power, and it's really quite a thing. If you if you have an open mind and listen to a gospel being chanted, I bet you you would go, "That is really that we're missing out." That's pretty cool. When I was growing up. My home pastor chanted the words of institution, not the rest of the service, but he chanted the words of institution. And what's interesting about that in Lutheran tradition is that the words of Christ are usually baritone, which always irks me because I'm a tenor. And I think, no, 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 Jesus should be a tenor. I was always but, a tenor before they kicked me out, too. Before they kicked you out. <laughs> but so there's, this is actually a, a nice little way to make a connection because that has to do with incarnation as well, since we're talking about Holy Communion. Interesting. And that, since we're going to begin the communication of attributes, historically, you two would know better than me, weren't the the gospel and the words of institution were chanted in the same tone? Is that... Yes. That's how Luther had it? It kind of two highlights of the two parts of the service, the word yeah. and the mm-hmm. yeah. All right, let's do our Christmas hymns. Uh, I got us distracted. My, my favorite is Of the Father's Love Begotten. We had it at our wedding. We got married uh, during uh, the, during the, Christmas, the short Christmas season. Um, Isn't that a liturgical no-no, not during Advent or Lent or whatever? You're not supposed to do weddings? It was during the Christmas season. Also not the during Advent. The actual Christmas season. So is it yeah. Advent and Lent that you're not supposed to do weddings? 
Lent for sure. Yeah, okay. that was. I always to be refuse the thing. to do funerals too, just out of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. We'll wait to the right. You, yeah. you have them stacked up for yeah. Easter, you know, the week of Easter. Um, I I like it. I think it's uh, when it, it's one of those hymns that's that is beautiful, ancient. That the, at least the text is is very very ancient. Is that Prudentius? Yeah. So. Uh, is he the author? I think so. Yeah. Fifth century. I mean, it's it's old, and. I mean, the tune that uh, most familiar people with it, I think, is 16th century, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it's one of those hymns that is singable, but but very, very glorious. I like the Latin. We don't have very many in our hymnal that come from uh, the Latin fathers. Uh, you know, obviously, we're, we're dominated by either 16th, 17th century German writers or Methodist writers <laughs> that, that wrote in English. And so it's fun to have that. It, it just has a different feel. The poetry has a different feel. and But it's also one that a choir can do and hit it out of the park. You know, So it's something that the, the average layman can sing, but then if you hear a choir do it, it's, it's really, really cool too. And I, I wonder if it's underrated. Well, it has to compete with all of these Christmas hymns of course and i think some hymnals actually put it in the epiphany season maybe in their epiphany section i, I might be mistaken on that but i wonder if it, it doesn't get used enough because of the words mary full of grace oh they're the virgin full of grace or virgin yeah. full of grace uh -huh. which we understand as well she's pregnant it's, with it's the one of, of grace yeah. right it's, you know it's it's yeah it's kecharitomene yeah. in greek but grace you, bestowed you could understand one. a you know a lutheran pastor from 1945 in wisconsin <laughs> is like i better not choose that one the farmers may come with the pitchforks so i i, I wonder if it did get lost a little did you grow up singing that hymn actually one christmas the school children sang it oh, and, nice. yeah so yeah we, we did sing it yeah that's what so that's my favorite christmas hymn Wade? I would have to say um, my favorite, uh, one of them that coming into Lutheranism from Catholicism, uh, you know, a lot of the Christmas hymns were exactly the same you're familiar with. And one that stood out to me um, when I became a Lutheran, so, you know, about 18 years old, um, that has always now remained probably my favorite. Uh, and I'm a fan of this hymn writer. Uh, would be Yaroslav Vida's um, Where Shepherds Lately Knelt. Uh, it's not a bunch of verses. The verses are not extremely long. In fact, the, I think the fourth part of the verse is always repeated. Um, but that was one that always struck me, um, tying together what Christ has come to be with Isaiah. Um, so I would, I would say Where Shepherds Lately Knelt. I believe in Christian worship, our red hymn, though, um, it's 54, I want to say, or 53. I don't know. I should. Yeah, I, I used to know all these hymn numbers, and then getting to the college and not being in the parish. Um, since I'm not doing bulletins every week, we're gonna have to rememorize them all in new hymnal. Um, and but I, of course, know them in TLH. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I often appreciate Vita's hymns. I, um, I know a lot of people don't like his his processional and recessional hymns. I think because of the, I think they think it's hard to sing. But now the silence and, mm. um, I really enjoy those too. So I would I would have to say. Where Shepherds uh, Lately Knelt was the one that stuck with me most. Um, and then I, from a purely, uh, I would say, emotive standpoint, um, for 10 years in the parish, we always closed um, 
the uh, Christmas Eve, um, the uh, service of lessons and carols, and then the, the midnight kind of mass we started. It went, we didn't call it mass, but <clears throat> that's what it was. Right? Um, was uh, um, to sing Silent Night in German. Yeah. That was that, I mean, that was just something that stuck with me. So. We, we, always, we would close with that on Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day... Um, we would close with Joy to the World. That was kind of a tradition we had, too. But those are more, like you said, emotive than... I want to say our processional on Christmas Day was always, Oh, come all you faithful. And I think Joy to the World was the recessional as well. Paul? Well, since Wade lived free and chose to, I'm going to do the same thing. (laughs) Um, One for Christmas Eve and one for Christmas Day. So All My Heart This Night Rejoices for Christmas Eve. It has a different title in Christian worship, I think, hmm. um, by Paul Gerhardt. And of course, in the Lutheran hymnal, I think it's 15 verses or something like that, um, all of which are wonderful stanzas. Yeah. yeah. I kind of wish sometimes we'd put them all in and then you could just pick if you really want to limit it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and for Christmas Day, Lobt Gott, ihr Christen alle gleich. Uh, praise God, the Lord, you sons of men. Uh, no, we'll let all together praise our God. We can't yeah. be sons of men anymore. Can <laughs> we? Um, and the, the reason for that actually has something to do with the topic of our broadcast today. Um, and also because of my dissertation. <laughs> so at the end of my dissertation, I quoted it in German because the English translation is not really accurate. Um, and it's... Um, he gives us in his father's kingdom bright divinity on. Hmm. So I, you know, I was writing about um, that we partake of the divine nature and then and, and gives us in his father's what? Something. Um, it, it's different in English and it, it doesn't really convey the, 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 the weight of yeah, those I words in German. I should the handbook in for this because it has the German in it, huh? Yeah. So, and it's, I mean, the rest of the hymn is really... Very beautiful, too. If we want to offend listeners, is there any Christmas hymn you'd take out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Go tell it on the mountain. That'd probably be mine, too. Is that in our hymnal? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. That's right. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just okay. it's cheesy. Yeah. I can think of a few. Just in, That would be a good free-for-all that would unfortunately upset people would be if you... Mm-hmm. What hymn would you most want to take out of <laughs> current Lutheran hymnals? Oh, the, Mine would the, be "Were You There." It could be it'd "Were be You a, There" agitates me because we always sing it like, "If we were there, we would have stopped Jesus from getting crucified." And it's like, "Great, <laughs> now everyone goes to hell." Good chance. <laughs> well, uh, and my wife turned to me one time and said, "Well, I wasn't." Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> and then sometimes it makes me want to tremble. Other times, not so much. Yep, other yeah. Well, I I think we both said this. Uh, I said it in the parish. Uh, be wary of hymns that start with "I." If there's two, not that they're necessarily wrong, but if you if you kind of end up singing about yourself, you know that usually ends. You up know what a hymn though that I love that has an eye is, is "Lord, You I Love with All My Heart." <laughs> that's a good one, and that's an eye. Yeah. Yeah. Start, starts with the Lord though, so yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> All right, we're getting that way, would be I, a very that would be base. a very long podcast. You know the nice thing about "Go Tell on the Mountain" though is the kids love to belt that one out. Yep, that's fine. Because they remember the I'm, refrain, I, they get excited. Listen, and that's, I, you know, you want to sing uh, what's what's the what's the war one that we sing in VBS every year? Uh, Onward, uh, Christian gone, soldiers. No, no. 
uh, Lift High the Cross. Oh, Lift High the Cross. Yeah. Oh, I that could, was big when I was Catholic. I could, we used to sing that a lot I for could, the processional. I, I could do that one. I could do without that one, too. We used to also sing the... Um, Dance, dance, wherever you may be. Oh, I am the Lord I of the am. dance. They yeah. used to love Father John liked to pick that one, yeah. I think. The other thing with Lift High the Cross is they took out one of the best stanzas. All newborn soldiers of the crucified bear mm. on their brow the huh. sign of him who died. Ah, yeah. Really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I know that. That I would be better. The evangelical worship, which was uh, ELCA. Oh, evangelical Lutheran hymnary? Or? No, 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 no. It's red. EW, I think, is the. Yeah. That I think they took out. Most hymns that had, I may be wrong, but any kind of war type soldier type reference, and it's a biblical reference, but I can understand, you know, it's the church militant is not the U.S. Army. That's that's not really the imagery kind of thing. I suppose it's offensive. Anyway, yeah. we better stop now before we yeah we'll keep going. So we'll be back for our main topic. topic in, in the free frog because we are talking Christmas, but we're going to be speaking specifically about how Christ redeems us as one person in two natures, and then more specifically within that, um, the communication of his attributes in that saving work in the person of Christ who has two natures. Um, but we kind of laid out an outline. We don't always do an outline. I know it's shocking if you listen to the show. Um, <laughs> But uh, of how we want to go through some of these terms, and um, you might feel like you're in a doctrine class, but don't worry, at the end we're going to tie together why these matter, um, and these things do matter. One of the things that I, I like to remind students, and I used to like to remind people in Bible class about, is when people were willing to risk their lives over some of these issues, or to give their lives, as a part of the communion of saints, we kind of owe it to them to at least give give it a shot that maybe it matters um, that we understand these things. And that's not only true in Christology, but in a lot of issues in the church. But if you look at the creeds, we say the three ecumenical creeds that we say in worship, there were people who ventured and risked all for this. Uh, Athanasius is, is one of my personal heroes. Um, he's exiled, he's brought back, he's exiled. Um, this was not a little thing in church history. And so this good confession that we have came with blood, sweat, and tears, um, with infamy and scandal. Um, and so we, we do well to understand it. There, and people may say, well, there's not anybody fighting it over today. Actually, when you look at the um, general uh, religious landscape in America, these teaching, the false teachings have never gone away. So um, the order we're going to try to go in real quick, uh, I'll give it to you, and then we'll go back and go through it would be what do we mean by person when we're talking about God or, or um, more specifically about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ? What do we mean by attribute? <clears throat> what do we mean by nature? What do we mean by personal union? And then what do we mean by a communication of attributes? And we'll talk about that in three ways. 
um, the three genera or genera, um, depending on how we want to pronounce our Latin, uh, classical or, or medieval, uh, ecclesiastical. I, I, I probably will bounce back. I'm very undisciplined in that, so I will trust Mike and Paul to correct me for <laughs> consistency. But there we're going to talk about first the idiomatic um, uh, genus, genus um, then the majestic, and then the apotelismatic, and then why it matters. So maybe if we can throw out first, and I think for these, Paul, we'll throw it to you first and then let others jump in as they want. Um, but if you could define, when we're talking theology, what do we mean when we use that term person about God? So the confessions say that we define person basically the way Aristotle did, that which subsists of itself. But I go on, I, I, I give a broader definition, actually. Of course, I give the medieval definition, because I said, I, I tell my class, so my dog, Freddie, Friedrich, uh, subs- he's not the same as Spot, and he's not the same as Rover, and he's not the same as Lucy. You know, he's, he subsists of himself, but he's not a rational creature. So the medieval definition is an individual substance, which is pretty much saying that's that which subsists of itself, of a rational nature. So humans, angels, and of course, God is a person. Do you, I don't know if this is helpful or not. I, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some, uh, some dangers here, but sometimes I say, think personality, right? I mean, so the students think person, they think, oh, a human being that has a, uh, a body and stuff like that, but uh, the father doesn't have a body. Right, so person, uh, there's some danger there, I'm sure, but um, I don't know if that's helpful or not for 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 a beginner to think that a rational person, I think, is probably, yeah, where you're at. Yeah, and <laughs> so I actually steer them away from that. I mean, wait, wait, the way well, you're saying I, it is asking, good. That's why I'm asking but, it because I've I've always felt. I'm like, think about it this way, but then I go, ah, be careful, and, I, and, and I'm interested to see how you teach it. Yeah, because, you know, they'll get, they'll get steered into, oh, you know, fun at parties, or yeah. <laughs> always morose, or, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, if you caution them against that, that's fine. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the second term we have there is uh, attribute, and um, probably the average English speaker is going to not think attribute, but attribute, right? You attribute something oh, yeah. to someone... Um, maybe they say attribute about a person, you know, but I think, um, I don't know that the term gets used as much anymore in the way that we mean it in theology. So if we're going to use the term attribute and we're using it in theology and we're using it specifically about God or even more specifically, once again, about the second person of the Trinity, what do we mean about it by an attribute? Okay. uh, The easy term to use is characteristic. Okay. So, and this is not, I'm going to talk about, instead of God, dog, again, that, you know, a, an attribute of my dog is wags his tail when he's happy, you know, has sharp teeth and is basically a, um, a carnivore. All those sorts of things are attributes, human attributes, having a body and a soul, that sort of stuff. And, uh, sorry, I wanted to make dog jokes, but I'm going to stop now. I was going to ask <laughs> I was going to say my dog's vegan, but she's not. So, um, <laughs> the uh, to get to the next term, then, um, and now I am just confused myself um, because I have arrows on my thing. And, um, I think we were going to go nature and then personal union, right? Nature, yeah. Okay, so we'll go personal, um, personal or nature and then personal union. Right. 
So let's take nature then. And this is where comes up a lot with Christ. Um, people who are in church somewhat frequently at some point have probably heard um, Christ referred to according to his two natures. Now, here's in common English parlance, nature is going to mean I'm walking through a state park or um, someone's nature is they they tend to be calm or they're an angry person. <clears throat> what do we mean when we're speaking about specifically now the second person of the Trinity, Christ, and we talk about him having two natures? What does nature mean there? So, and that's why I thought it'd be helpful to do attributes first because uh, a nature is those attributes that make something what it is. So we share in human nature because we have a body and a soul, and there are other things you can mention that are attributes of us. And then, of course, attributes of God, omniscience, omnipotence, eternity, also those are attributes of God that make divine nature what it is. And so uh, just a, for our listeners, kind of more a philosophical question, we often talk about essence and accidents those aren't exact parallels or are they with attributes in nature well then i'm you know technically i suppose somebody would jump on me because they're not exact Mm -hmm. parallels but they're very similar okay and one of my guys got in trouble for for treating them yeah without uh too much distinction but well maybe that's for a different of different day but i've always i think it's helpful to keep in mind because we do say for instance he's of one substance with the father Mm -hmm. i just what what is what is a one-line distinction between essence and nature and what's a one-line distinction between accidents and an accident and a attribute philosophically i've never i've never really been able to pinpoint that so I could tell my students in two lines. Well, I would say an attribute doesn't have to be essential to right. someone. Um, although when we're talking about the attributes of God, they tend to be, philosophically at least, often essential to who, I mean, God is holy, and I would say essentially holy. <clears throat> um, right. That, so when we talk about accidents, like I have two hands. If you cut off one of my hand, I'm still essentially who I am. Right. But there's certain... But having two hands is no longer an attribute of you, yeah. right? But there's certain attributes of God that he would not be God if he did not have these attributes. And I, I, that's true, I suppose, of, of a human being to body and soul. And I, I think we, this would come out in Christology where we um, say that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father. If he were not eternal, then he would not have probably what is an essential attribute of God. And we as human beings all share similar attributes that make up our nature, but other things are accidental to us, yeah. and we don't share them. Yeah. And an attribute of fallen man would be concupiscence, but that's not essential to being a human being, as we see with Christ or ourselves right. in heaven. And, and maybe a complicated matter, too, when we talk about the sinful nature. Right. Right, That's that, that makes a little bit more... You just have to... I think you, you're confusing us. I know you're confusing well, I, me. I know, and that's why maybe we should just move on because this is... But those are kind of important definitions, and sometimes right. we use them interchangeably. And No, uh, and I think that would be a good episode to go back and talk about um, accident and... Um, uh, essence. Um, essence, and especially as it pertains to original sin. We did one original sin episode, but I don't think we got into that yeah. a lot, and it would be nice to do that according well, to we the should, we should, I, I apologize. We should, we should move on, but it's... Uh, there's... there's uh, I'm, I think that I'm f- sometimes too loose with throwing out those words. And sure. Don't, but anyway, go to... Uh, go to. Okay, so we've had nature, person, attribute. 
now we're going to get to personal union. Um, what do we mean by the personal union when we're referring to Christ? Okay, so there's the complicated way to talk about it, and there's maybe an easier way to talk about it. Um, that the both natures, human and divine, are united in the single person of Christ. But, and this is actually getting into the, um, what's the first one we're going to deal with? The, the uh, I think idiomatic. we decided to go idiomatic yeah. first. Yeah. Um, in the single person of Christ. But that doesn't mean that divine nature becomes human or human nature becomes divine. So that's kind of the easy way to talk about it. The other way is when we talk about the impersonality of the human nature of Christ. So you can only be one person at a time, even though people who are deeply in love say, you know, oh, we're just one person because we love each other. Yeah. But you can only be one person at a time. And so there is no person for the human nature of Christ. The person of the human nature of Christ is always the second person of the Holy Trinity. And, and I think that's helpful to keep in mind because as we now get into the two natures, um, a true and false question that I always put on the test for our freshmen in 110 is uh, true or false, Christ is 50% human and 50% man, right? And then inevitably some will get it wrong because they're racing through the t- test. And then when I go through the test with Manfred, I'll say, you know, Christ is not a mutant like a centaur or, <laughs> or a merman. Um, and so I think as you just put it, he is both these things, but in one person. The human nature is 100%, but it doesn't have its own person. The human nature that is 100% is in the person of Christ, mm-hmm. as we will have in the divine. And I think people who want to understand Christianity really struggle with this um, because it's so unlike how we think of ourselves, right? And how can this be that he can be both both God and man? You have... Um, in Greek mythology, I suppose, gods who have human characteristics or people who are, um, you know, Achilles is, um, uh, who is she, son of what goddess? Um, he's son of uh, Athena, maybe? I'm trying to think in the, you know, they're fighting and the ones that are supporting Achilles, <clears throat> you know what I mean. Um, but even there, Achilles is not um, 100% God, 100% man. Um, this is unique to to Christianity, and uh, it's also what the divinity claim especially is what sets Christianity apart from other religions. I've mentioned before on this episode when I was living in the Netherlands, we were in, a, um, in Rotterdam, and Rotterdam has a very high Muslim population. In fact, for a while, it might still be the highest Muslim population in, um, in at least Western Europe, if not Europe. Um, I mean... I suppose you get to Bosnia, Herzegovina, and all that, and you have that. But um, outside of the Balkans, they had one of the largest mosques, too. And, and sometimes um, when you would go to the shopping areas, you'd have some Muslims doing their equivalent of evangelism, which I believe they called dawah. And they would ask people who were not very well-catechized Christians but were nominal state church, not state church, but nominal Christians, um, do you believe that Jesus was a man sent from God or God? Now, the Christian answer to both is Yes, yes, right. Um, but the person would often say, I believe that Jesus is a person sent by God. And they would say, see, you are already a Muslim. That's what Muhammad taught. <laughs> and um, how Jesus can be both of those things does not come easy to people uh, to understand. Because he comes in humility so that we, we see his humanity, his humanity more than his divinity. His divinity is masked. And purposefully so, um, seeing the glory of God is not a, a good thing for a sinner. Um, it's a terrifying thing. So maybe if we get to these three 
genus uh, or genera or genera. Um, and maybe that should be the next term we define. What do we mean by a genus or um, by genera? Okay, it's, I mean, I, I always tell them, I'll just say what I say in the classroom. I say it's a classification. So scripture talks about Jesus in various ways as far as the personal union goes. And these are ways of sort of sorting it out, you know, that, yeah, it, it, this applies to one aspect of it and, you know, the majestic genus to another aspect and so on. Um, and it's in the church fathers. In fact, when I teach Athanasius on the incarnation, I ask them to identify Athanasius's references to each one of the genera in there. And, oh, they kind of do, they kind of don't. But... Um, it's, it's all there. I mean, this is early Christian teaching, and it's a way of saying, here's how we understand the personal union. It's, and, it's pedagogical, right? right. I mean, and it's, it's for the purpose of teaching as opposed to maybe confessing. If we, I mean, we wouldn't divide well, the two. Well, that's what I was going to get at next is... And, and it's very Lutheran historically, but in true Lutheran fashion, it's grounded in exactly. both the scriptures and the history of the church. Yeah. And, and, that, and I want to unpack that a little bit because someone might say, well, those terms aren't in the Bible, just like someone might say of Trinity, um, and they would be right. Those mm-hmm. terms are not. But I would say the teachings clearly are. What are places that we might find the teaching of two natures in one person or these general, before we even break them down, just to be clear of um, that this is biblical theology. It's not like we've left the realm of biblical theology to get to philosophy. Rather, we're talking about terms that are given to explain theological concepts within the scriptures. I'm, either of you, uh, or I can jump in, but um, where, where, where would we find these things? We don't have to quote chapter and verse, but um, as we look at the scriptures. Well, to start out, I think it's important all, also to keep in mind that the church has always confessed this is a mystery. Okay, the union of the two natures in the one person of Christ is ultimately a mystery, and not mystery like in English where Scooby Doo is going to figure it out. No, not not right. It's indeed not that. The, <laughs> but we, you know, we want to say as much about it as we can without going too far. And so you have things like Jesus saying, "I thirst." And you also have him saying, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Well, and he knows the hearts and minds of those in the crowd. Exactly. So, you know, he expresses attributes of divinity, and he expresses attributes of humanity. He says, I and the Father are one, one, and then he prays to the Father. Yeah, know. exactly. Um, so if we think of these, these genera, um, we tend to speak of three and here you guys can correct me. I think most Christian theology is only going to speak of three. I don't think there's um, anybody who's really going to go beyond three, so far as I know. If there is, I haven't heard of them. I mean, the tradition of the church is to speak in these three categories. And, and it's, in the larger Protestant world, do, do the Reforms speak this way? It's I don't know if they use a, the same terminology, yeah, but they do talk it's, about it's, it, yeah. The way and, we although speak between Zwingli and Luther, the rubber will hit the road right, on, yes, right. on the communication of these things. Right. Um, and so, Paul, you suggested taking uh, the idiomatic genus or, or genus first. Um, so maybe if you could, why, why take that one? Or Define it I first. interrupted first uh, a thought we had talked about earlier, Mike. Why don't you now interject here a little bit with why um, August people, or no, Francis people you were talking about, well, we, why he says it's unfortunate that we even have to yeah, discuss Yeah, and this. We've, we've started skirted the issue a little bit, just that 
um, I, I can't remember his exact words, but you know, it, he kind of, I think he used the word sad. We're sad. We have to talk this way. Um, we would like just to talk about Jesus and, uh, what scripture says, but because of Christological con- controversies in the past mm-hmm. and in the present, we do have to define these terms. Um, we do have to, for teaching use, say, okay, let's, let's talk about it in three different genus, uh, talk about it this way so that we can clearly, uh, so we don't go too, like you said, we like you said before, we don't go too far. We don't go beyond scripture. We don't go beyond what Christ has told us about himself. But do say uh, as much as it says. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then, and I think I tell my catechism students or used to is say, he's 100% true God and 100% true man. And the math doesn't work out and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and don't try to figure out the math. But as you said, say as much as scripture has said as well. So I, I you know, that's good enough. And, and maybe just briefly, Paul, too, before we jump into them, uh, you look at the creeds and the, the context in which they arose. Why, why is it Christ's two natures that they're fighting about so often in the, in the, I guess, I mean, we could say the first six or seven centuries of the, of the church. Um, why, in your view, is it that the, we don't hear as much about fighting about the Father or the Spirit, although there is some fighting, why is there so much debate about Christ and his two natures? Well, because obviously Scripture and the whole Old Testament background affirms that here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then all of a sudden we have Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. So how do you deal with one now is two <laughs> and ultimately three? And, and what, how are you going to talk about that? Um, so you affirm what Scripture says about it, but then you have someone like Arius saying, well, Jesus is begotten of the Father, so he's begotten the same way human beings are begotten. The Father was first, he came second. That's how we can reconcile those two things. Mm-hmm. And the church had to say, well, no, he's co-equal, co-eternal, co-everything with the Father. Um, and because, as you said, it's because of Christological controversies. We wouldn't talk about it. I always say when I'm teaching the introduction to systematic theology that people were defining these things only because a false teaching arose. Yeah. We, you know, the, the Christians didn't sit under a fig tree saying, you know, well, if, the, if the wife burns her husband's dinner, you know, is that grounds for divorce? And, you know, the, the way the Jewish rabbis did. Yeah. Um, and so that's why they came up with these things. The other thing is that I mean, obviously in the pulpit, you're not going to say, oh, and this has to do with the idiomatic genus, you know, but you're going to preach the idiomatic genus exactly. anyway. So, yeah. And, and I think if we, if we think of the context in which Christianity arises, it arises out of Judaism, which is a strict monotheism. Um, and if you look at the issues that Islam will have with Christianity, and Islam is a very strict monotheism, um, both will look and say, how is that monotheistic? Um, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, God is one is a clear biblical teaching, and yet Jesus says things like, no one comes to the Father except through me. And if anyone thinks discussion of the Trinity or the two uh, natures in one person is just abstract, the formula that Jesus chooses to give the church for the sacrament of initiation, where you are brought into the church, is a confession of the Trinity in the name of the oh, yeah. Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is as practical as your baptism, and your baptism is kind of sort of an important thing 
uh, according to the New Testament. So let's take uh, first, why, why start with it, the idiomatic genus? Well, because that's, well, it's, it's the ground level for understanding the, anything, anything else you talk about. So the um, attributes of either nature can be ascribed to the person, but not to the opposite nature. I mean, that's the basic definition of the idiomatic genus. Um, and that helps to sort things out, or else you're going to get terribly confused when you talk about the majestic genus and the apotelosmatic genus. So when we're talking about the, the idiomatic genus, as you've mentioned, um, it's that each nature gives its attributes to the person. So the divine nature, strictly speaking, doesn't die. But Christ Jesus died, and he didn't die merely as a human being. He died as Christ, as Christ Jesus, who is true God and true man. Um, the human nature is not omniscient, and yet Jesus knew the hearts uh, and minds of those in the crowd on many occasions mm -hmm. in the Gospels. Um, and he didn't know that according to his human nature, but his divine, but he knew it as Christ Jesus, who is both God exactly. and yeah. man. Um, why does uh, why does the idiomatic genus matter? Why is it so important? It helps us solve a lot of references in Scripture, for one thing. Um, it doesn't solve everything, and so you have to also look at the states of humiliation and exaltation. So when Jesus says, of, that, of, of the last day, of that day and of that hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, well, it's because in his state of humiliation, he chose not to use all the divine attributes that were communicated to his human nature. So, you know, that it, and so, and that gets back then again to the idiomatic genus, ultimately. And I think a couple things with this genus that are so important for preaching. Um, one of the things I've always found so compelling about Monday, Thursday, and Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane is what other religion can say God prays to God? You know, oftentimes mm -hmm. Christians will say, well, can God know what I'm going through? And you look at Gethsemane and you go, um, yup, <clears throat> yeah, he, uh, he prays thy will be done. Um, or uh, one of my favorite Lenten hymns, which we butcher in the English, um, where we sing, O sorrow, dread, God's son is dead. It's God selbst ist tot. Yeah, but the German is, O tiefer note, God selbst ist tot. God himself is dead. Well, that is a, a sermon that God's blood saves you, right? Um, and if you can't preach that... Um, and Paul, you're going to have to correct me on Athanasius here. What he has not assumed, he's not redeemed. Mm -hmm. um, right then, we're then we're in, in trouble. Um, anything more on that one? Well, and then we're talking about Christmas. So, um, and <laughs> earlier we talked about how you know the Virgin full of grace and so on. Well, the confessions say regarding the Virgin Mary. Well, therefore she is and is rightly called the Mother of God. Uh -huh. I mean, we affirm mm -hmm. now. Lutherans react against it because there are Roman Catholic churches, I guess, and school, you know, Mother of God, whatever. Um, well, they're just saying what's right when they say yeah. that. No, they, they go in a different direction with it. Right. And that's the problem. Well, and, and if you do want to reject the term, then you're actually condemned by the ecumenical creeds because yes. they're... Um, Nestorius, Valix, yeah, yeah. Nestorius wanted Christotokos, she's the Christ bearer, not Theotokos. And um, Cyril of Alexandria stood, you know, said, "No, she is the mother of God." Yeah, so. and um, and if she's not the mother of God, then what is Christ? Um, Theotokos. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so, if we take the the second, um, as I have written down here, we have the um, 
the majestic, and I think the majestic often for students is the easiest one to understand. Um, but what is the, the majestic genus and, and why does it matter? So when Jesus became incarnate, the attributes of the divine nature were not lessened or weakened in any way by being united with human nature. Now, what we don't talk about all that much, though, is nevertheless, human nature had never been united with divine nature before. And so, in a sense, this gave a new capacity to human nature. It's not the main point of the uh, majestic genus. but So, what... um. When we think of the divine being given to the human, the divine nature remains itself. It's not the divine, like the divine nature needed anything more. Right. But why is the divine nature being communicated to the human, um, that it can be said of the human? Why is that so important? Let's say for something like Christian preaching or hymnody, um, why does it matter for the average believer? Well, yeah, that... Um Uniting with human nature, I, th I think, isn't the term condescended that's used sometimes in even some of the that hymns? Right, yeah. yeah, that um, this is how much God loved us, that he didn't hold himself aloof from us in any way, but united himself totally to us in human nature, and therefore fully can save us. And connected with that... And I'm sorry, and I should say, and reunite us with him. So. And connected with that, um, if Jesus, if all the divine... Uh, if all that is divine is, is communicated to the humanity, why isn't baby Jesus floating around? Why is, why is um, Jesus in the wilderness hungry? Um, why isn't he, you know, uh, always um, healing the sick or always, um, you know, doing God things as we would think of them? So he entered his state of humiliation, his um, willingness to not always or fully use the divine attributes communicated to us. Now I sound like I'm back in the classroom again. Mm -hmm. To save us, okay? To, to always be shining in glory would have been really nice, except he wouldn't have died on the cross. And, and here I think... Or kept the law. Yeah, and I think this is where it's important for us to understand um, what we mean by that humiliation, too. Um, we, we don't mean he's always embarrassed, right. like he's born and he's like, oh, it's so embarrassing being a baby. What do we mean by the humiliation? Well, his helplessness. You know, he was willing to be, have to be fed by his mother and everything else, everything else that went along with it. Not making you full use exactly. of his divine powers. I, I think, especially when I teach Hebrews very quickly in, in Theology 105, our intro to scripture, um, uh, a theme of Hebrews is Jesus is legitimate. And this is very important for us because Jesus is our righteousness. And so his righteousness actually needs to be legitimate. It can't be a fake righteousness, right? So I, I start out by saying, you know, I hold up the marker and I say, um, what if I told you this marker was righteous? It never cheated on its wife and it never stole. You'd be like, it's a marker. It's a good marker, though. It's a very good marker. It's very pious. Uh, all of our markers right now are not pious because none of them work in, in our classrooms. But uh, anyway, that's Paul brought some new one over to my good. classroom. I was very grateful. Um, but in a similar way, I can say if God comes down here and we say, God never overate. It's God. But if God is also 100% man, then his temptation is real. 
and therefore his righteousness is real. He actually lived this righteous life in our place. So these, these Christological things are important, and then we get to the humiliation, which is finally because of love. He loved us enough. Well, and you mentioned Hebrews, so he's tempted in every way as we are, and really, yep. that's a real temptation. And that's the way to get a pastor's conference fighting with each other is to bring up the impeccability of Christ because I think we don't always get that straight. But maybe if you can unpack that a little bit. Um, Because lots of church members will ask their pastor, well, if he's God, how could he really be tempted? Um, In what sense can we say he was truly tempted, as Hebrews says? Yeah, so we have to get past some of the preconceived notions we have about this kind of thing. Um, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. Oh, that's fine. um, There was a... Well, no, I'll go in the same direction. There was a controversy among students here 15 or 20 years ago. Not a controversy, but a discussion. It was when people first got computers and they were doing stuff back and forth you know, on their computers um, about could Jesus have sinned. And you have to really make a strong point that his life on earth was not just perfectly reading the part in a play mm-hmm. that was written for him. And, and we sometimes tend to do that, I think. Uh, so there was this big discussion going on, and I thought I had a nice answer, but it's probably not a good enough answer. I said, well, he could have because that would have made the temptation real, but he never would have. Mm-hmm. Now, does that answer everything? No. Um, the other thing that relates a little bit to what you were saying is liberal denominations tend to emphasize Jesus' humanity to the point that some of them deny his divinity. Right. We tend to emphasize his divinity almost sometimes to the detriment of his true humanity. And so that's why it seems like, well, I say in class, so you're standing on a hillside and you see 13 guys walking past on the road down below. And uh, somebody, the person next to you says, you know, one of those is is Jesus. And Well, of course it's Jesus. He's wearing white and he's got a halo. I mean, you know, (laughs) you don't have to tell me one of them's Jesus. And then one of them stubs his foot, stubs his toe and says, ouch, well, that can't be Jesus. Well, sure it can. Um, You know, he was real. He was fully human. And a a side question, but I only ask this, Paul, because you've done a lot with the Eastern Orthodoxy as well. Is it fair to say, though, for early Lutheranism and medieval Roman Catholicism, that it emphasized Christ's humanity, whereas Eastern Orthodoxy emphasized his divinity more? Yeah, especially as far as his suffering goes. So Eastern Orthodoxy certainly has rites and services and everything for Lent. I mean, Lent, oh my gosh, I go through right. an Eastern Orthodox Lent and you, how you can come out alive is <laughs> amazing. Um, but... Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, everything. And, you know, well, we've talked about this, how yeah. the priest actually nails the icon of Christ onto the cross on Good Friday. Um, but the resurrection is the big deal. You know, it's much more emphasis on the resurrection than on Jesus' suffering. And and the, much more emphasis on that than imitating Jesus in it. That was the big deal in late yeah. medieval Catholicism and also in early Lutheranism. Um, whereas, I rem- when I was a vicar, the Good Friday communion service, I mean, people came out of the woodwork and uh, you know, all over the place. Good in, Friday in Bra- was the big deal. In Brazil? No, here. This is okay. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think uh, 
we can maybe circle back to that with Christmas because I think there's a, a, a really good corrective in there. Um, then if we take third, apotelismatic, what do we mean by that, Janus? Yeah, that Jesus is our Savior both according to his divine nature and according to his human nature. And maybe you can help me unpack that. <laughs> well, and, and I think, um, is it fair to say, the way I often think of it is that the two natures and one purpose and one person had a purpose. Definitely. That this is there there was a telos, right, the apotelismatic. It was towards a goal, right? There was he didn't just do this just to do this, like he was bored in heaven and thought, I wonder what it's like to be one of them. But this this union took place with a purpose in mind. And so when we speak of the union, we don't speak of it um just as an abstraction to be theorized about, but but as part of a, an actual uh, um, plan. And there were two different kinds of errors. One was that, well, when he died on the cross, then his divine nature must have left because God can't die. And no, he still was God and man in one person, was affirmed. The other one is that, well, how could his human nature contribute anything towards our salvation when he died on the cross? Because... You know, only divine nature is worthy enough to forgive us. But no, he had to be both God and man. I mean, you know, he's the new Adam. We got ourselves into this mess as human beings. So here's somebody who takes on our nature and gets us out of the mess also as a human being. Um, you done with that one? Oh, I thought you had a No, nope, I didn't. I didn't interrupt you. Uh, no. Um, so with that one in mind, I think this is an interesting one um, in how it plays out in Lutheran theology is... Um, and not just in Lutheran theology. I think you, you see it in medieval theology and, and in art as well. Um, but one of the things I've always found powerful is the connection historically made between the wood of the manger and the wood of the cross. Um, and I think some people, when they hear cross talk on Christmas, feel like they're being cheated. Like, this is the baby Jesus moment. Why are we making this about Good Friday and Easter? Um, what does the, the apotelismatic genus or... All three of them together, um, how do they impact how we speak about, um, well, the Gospels as a whole, the four Gospels, but especially about Christmas? What do, what do they bring to the preaching of that event? Or maybe I can say what I'm thinking, <laughs> maybe I'm off. Why don't you start and roll, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking speci specifically, you know, especially in a lot of our... Um, explicitly Lutheran hymns, and, and Gerhardt that comes to mind, um, but I think Vida as well, that, that we're rem I think that this genus especially reminds us um, that Christmas can't be an isolated event. It, it can't be preached in and of itself. Um, this is the greatest moment in human history at that time, and so... Um, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here too, but historically, wouldn't you kneel at, in the creed at the confession of the incarnation? Or am I wrong on that? Um, so some people cross themselves, or do they kneel? For for when we... And became man. And became man. Well, they bow. They bow. They that's bow. Right. Yeah, you okay. bow. That's right. Um, so yeah, there, you, this is an important event that's recognized creedally. Um, but why is it that there's this proclivity in Lutheran theology to move beyond that day, even already on that day, if that makes sense. Well, I, I think that... 
I'm not asking it well. I don't even know. No, what I'm no, I, well. I I know what you're you're getting at. Uh, to know to know God is to know Christ, and to know Christ is to know Him at the cross. And uh, we we talk about this a lot, right? Are you a first article Christian or a second article Christian? Um, we're all three, of course, but a first article Christian is going to talk about how God is awesome and great, and He's got a plan for me. It's it tends to be a little bit more theology of glory, a little bit to the expense of the theology of the cross and and Christ himself. So, you know, you, you ask the question, why, why, why is the Christological controversies of the early church, why did that dominate the early church? Well, it's a difficult situation, right, going from Old Testament and New Testament. There's philosophical concerns there. How do you put the physical and the spiritual in general together? But it's also because it's the whole deal, because it's Christ, right? I mean, that's what they're arguing about. And Christ doesn't mean anything to me if he just comes and if God, if, if Emmanuel means God's with us and he holds my hand, if Emmanuel just means God's with me and, you know, he's got a plan for me and he's, he's my friend, my co-pilot, well, pfft. But if God is with us to become the sacrifice, to live righteous so that he is our righteousness and is a righteous, perfect sacrifice, um, then that's, that actually solves the problem, right? So you don't, God's purpose of his incarnation is not to say, look, I did it, but to produce a savior, to produce the sacrifice of righteousness. And I think there's, an artful way to do it. And actually, you know, in most of my life, it's been done well. Although my Aunt Ruth, Tante Ruthie, uh, used to complain that, you know, well, it's Christmas, and all we ever heard about was the crucifixion. You know? <laughs> and that's what I'm getting at a little bit, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, the, unto you is born this day a Savior. Mm-hmm. So it's just natural mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. combine that with Christmas. And, you know, if you're going to just talk about a baby in a manger, I mean, they're... Babies and mangers are cute and, and nice, but, you know. And maybe our being English speakers, the hymnody that is less Lutheran and more, and there's nothing wrong with your Anglican Methodist hymns. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. But we'll, we'll sort of kind of, it's a side joke, right, that we're going to sing about the, the snow and the animals and the hay and the everything but the reason why Jesus came, right? So, um I think there's culture. When I was a vicar, I preached on the first Sunday of Advent, and I believe the epistle was from Hebrews, and it talked about the temple. I can't, I, it's been a long time since I was in the three-year lectionary. And first of all, it's Advent, um, and the first Sunday of Advent, but there was a well-to-do, important couple that went to my supervising pastor and were irate that I had ruined Christmas for them because I was talking about the the blood of the sacrifices and compared to the blood of Christ. Um, So that's real what you say. Like uh, I had ruined Christmas, which probably wasn't even December then probably (laughs) because it's the first Sunday. Um, I had ruined Christmas for them because, and that's a theology of glory. Let's, let's all get along. Let's, what's the true meaning of Christmas, Christmas, even for Christians is let's all get along. Well, and I'm thinking even in the in the Christmas season, the Christmas season doesn't let you just revel in the the sweet baby Jesus moment because you've got got holy innocence and then Mm -hmm. circumcision of Christ. 
And circumcision of Christ, I think this has to predate Luther, but I know Luther emphasizes the first time Christ sheds blood for us. And I'm guessing he's getting that from the it's Father. It's probably the bloodiest 12 days of the Christmas year beside, outside of, the of year, Good Friday. Of the church year, yeah. yeah. Yeah, is that him? Does that him predate the Reformation? Oh, blessed day when first was poured, the blood of our redeeming Lord. That's a good question. See, I should have brought a hymnal in here. Why don't we have one in here? I don't know. We should get one. We should have probably various sentences. Bi- probably in a Bible, too. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, Yeah, and that's kind of a little bit what I was getting at. I guess a couple questions. Um, so we're talking about Christmas, and we decided for Christmas to do the two natures, the personal union. Um, but just to clarify for our listeners, when does the personal union actually take place? When Jesus is incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Yeah, um, I think we sometimes forget that, that at conception, right? Um, I, I, can I interject yeah. something? I, so I just had to write something about how the debate over... Is December twenty fifth actually a pagan festival or whatever for for a church newsletter thing and and I started and I was explaining the different theories and and the church kind of has this idea of March twenty fifth was the Annunciation and that maybe had been the day that he died and the ancients thought maybe important people died on the day they were conceived which is very weird to us um, how, how do you broach that subject with your parents like just so I know what day I die could you <laughs> But then, so I, I wrote this, and then I had din- dinner with my children, and I said, I was explaining this to, to them, and I said, this is a very important theological topic. Would Jesus have been late? Would he have been right at 40 weeks, or would he have been on time or early? I think we could all say he was not late. The perfect son of God would not be late. <laughs> On time seems nice, but it seems like he he goes out of his way. Maybe in love of his mother, he would have been like, you know, a week and a half early. Because that messes up December 25th and messes up, you know. Uh, Well, she was on a donkey and everything. So, you know. (laughs) And and maybe uh, just to unpack a little bit, what, um, why is it, end of the day, whether December 25th was the day in Bethlehem or not, um, why is is the the day itself not of of central importance? With the the church didn't fight nearly as much about the date of Christmas as it has about Easter. <laughs> well, Christmas Christmas was late, and it, first of all, Epiphany predated Epiphany Christmas. Was, yeah. 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 yeah, and so I mean, ultimately, it's it's a celebration of the incarnation of Christ. And I have to just add one more thing. In, in the East, it's called Theophany, the appearance of God. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, two quick questions, and I'll throw it out to either of you. Um, why God is a baby? Why does it matter that he came as a baby? Why didn't he just come as an adult? You know, he shows up and he's fully... Um, what is there there for us in preaching and hymnody and theology in the fact that he's conceived and born? And then uh, secondly, I mean, just to send our listeners out as they uh, go to celebrate the Christmas uh, festival, um, if, if someone were to say, so what's in the manger? Um, what would be... Uh, a nice, succinct statement to a, you know to someone who doesn't understand Christianity. Um, so what's in the manger? So why God is a baby? Um, what can we unpack about that? And then what's in the manger? I'll Either f- of those. I'll go first, and we'll give uh, Paul the last the last word. Uh, the preaching, of course, is this is this is your Savior, right? Um, and uh, one who loves you enough to go through the whole thing in your place, like have diapers cry, um, have to grow up, um, have to learn his ABCs, 
those kinds of things. Um, because that righteousness needs to be legitimate, as we said before. Um, and, and we talk about God being with us kind of in this spiritual, in my heart kind of way. I mean, that's kind of the go-to, the generic Christianity, and maybe even generic Lutheran Christianity in America. You know, Jesus is always with you. He's in your heart. Um, but it's a whole lot different when he's fleshy. And he went through everything. And, and extend that then to the sacraments. Extend that to vocation. Extend that to, to the theology of the cross. Extend that to suffering. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a big question of, of human thinking. How, do you, how does God interact with the physical? How does the ordinary interact with the extraordinary? How does the spiritual and physical come together? That's a hard, those are hard questions that every philosophy tries to deal with. And uh, as messy it is, as it is to talk about all these technical terms about Christology, it's the answer. And no other religion has the answer. You were talking about Islam. I, I just will never forget uh, uh, <clears throat> wearing my collar to my own actual doctor's appointment and going to the University of Minnesota and some uh, Muslim young man, Muslim stopped me with a theological question. Yeah. He didn't do that even if I have an awesome Christian t-shirt. He wanted a serious answer. And he said, do you believe that, that Mary is um, the mother of God? You know? And because that, that would have been abhorrent to him that God, I'm hoping you the, got it right. The sovereign, <laughs> the sovereign, the sovereignty of God that he would become man is an abhorrent thing. Um, the fact that the sovereign God became man, um, condescending, um, that's the gospel. I mean, that, that's, that's pure gospel. And so I hope that in your Christian preaching that you hear this uh, season that it's, it's pure gospel. And then, since we're going to give Paul last word, I'll just jump in real quick. <clears throat> With that, too, is I think it also shows something else about Christianity with how Christianity views the world. And you, you got at this a little bit, Mike, in there with vocation and, and, and the physical. Is, um, you know, the tagline of the podcast is a world given back to us. Christ coming into the flesh means the flesh isn't bad. Yeah, Christ yeah, coming into yeah. the world means the world's not bad. And so Lutheranism... Um, is able to, and I would say ought to have a joy um, unparalleled um, in uh, life in this world as well. We recognize the cross, but the theology of the cross doesn't mean like a negative theology of the cross. Like we've talked about this world so bad. <laughs> I don't like anything in this world. Look at me, I suffered. Yeah, but that um, you look at how the church has historically celebrated Christmas, and it's in earthy, physical ways. We eat certain foods, we drink certain drinks, we spend... Um, time with flesh and blood family and friends. We sing songs. Um, we maybe even are daring enough to uh, to dance <clears throat> after a little glee wine, right? Um, but um, but this uh, that that Christ coming to the world is also a reminder to us that this world is gift. And so Jesus can say later, well, they say John the Baptist, he's no fun, and they say I'm a drunkard, <clears throat> right? Um, and the idea as well that. Um, when we sing rejoice, we, we don't just mean rejoice because there's a nativity scene up front, but rejoice in that we have a God. And, and Paul, you, um, I remember you had a paper at the Lutheran Colleges Conference that I thought brought this out well. And I think you were, it was on the, the lens of the liberal arts of the Christian. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, that this world now is, is imbued with uh, meaning, 
um, beyond what it would otherwise be for us because Christ has come into it and taken the flesh upon himself. But I'll stop with that and let you unpack anything you want as we wind up, Paul. Well, I mean, both of you said this so well and made a lot of the points I would have made. So I'm going to take a slightly different tack, and that is how, how does it affect our response? And so he nestles at his mother's breast, receives her earthly food, and so on. And in not so much our background, but much of Christianity, actually, Mary is a symbol for the church. Mm-hmm. And... The idea that, you know, sometimes it might seem, oh, you know, I'm so unworthy. I mean, we hear this a lot. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and they are, except through the cleansing blood of Christ. Um, But so for me to respond, and in a sense, as a member of the church, you know, to hold Jesus to my heart is a wonderful aspect, I think, of his incarnation. That, you know, he, he cared that much that I can actually respond in a way that's pleasing to him. Yeah, and the same as that, and I, I love that point, the same as Mary um, carried her within herself and held him. Um, so now through faith, we take hold of him, and uh, um, Luther says in an even better way, um, but that we take hold of him as well. And let's not forget, she said, whatever he says to you, do it. Yeah. <laughs> we should, uh, around Mother's Day next year, have us three talk about... Mary, that'd Mary be a good mother, one. and church. I think we're missing out by kind of our romophobia. As long as we don't talk about Semper Virgo, because I don't want to get a bunch of emails. We, we don't. We don't need to go there. People, Lutherans online get worked up about that. Yeah, one. we don't need to go there. That's fine. <laughs> we can talk uh, about what theories. it means. I have some, th- some theories website. about them, but I would, I would take off both sides. So anyway, yeah. we got to move on. It's Christmas. Be full of joy. All right, Mike. Why don't you set Paul up here? All right. Uh, I think we forgot to tell him at the beginning. <laughs> that's all right. Dr. Laniger, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you have uh, a way of talking about the Incarnation and medieval and, and the East in ways that, uh, that Wade and I just, just don't, don't, don't always do very well. And so we appreciate you coming back. And finally, we appreciate your gospel motivation here and the, the gospel centered that Christ came here um, to free us from sin and death, but also to give us a world uh, that we can enjoy. And so when all is said and done, when, when everything is done in Christ, there's nothing left to do for us but let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set them up another round. I set them up. Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round won't get me down.